Dear Andreas Gestrich, dear colleagues and friends, thank you all for coming. I hope this notoriously hot room does not get too intolerable. First of all, of course, I would... Can you hear, by the way? I've now moved a little closer to the microphone. All right. Okay, let's see if I can manage this. I'd like, first of all, to thank Andreas Gestrich for the great honour of this invitation to join such a distinguished cohort of German and British colleagues who've delivered these annual lectures um, since, I believe, 1979. It's a particular honour, given what for me is the absolute indispensability of the German Historical Institute to historians of Germany in the UK, and also my own admiration for what has been accomplished here under um, Professor Gestrich's leadership. I'm also delighted to be, I think, only the second female historian to be in this company since 1979. <laughs> the first one was relatively recent. Um, that was uh, Dame Janet Nelson. So let's hope this marks the beginning of a trend. <laughs> All right, now, looking back over these annual lectures in the last um, 20, 30 years, I was struck by the predominance of topics in the history of German statecraft and German international relations, and also by the tendency of my predecessors to take a synoptic view of their theme from a pretty lofty perch. There are obviously sound reasons for these choices, but in fact my own work has rather moved in the opposite direction, from the larger perspectives to a more intimate or local register. And in tonight's lecture, therefore, um, I'm going to combine these scales by taking as my subject or my field what I'll call the micro-history of geopolitics. The geopolitical field is Nazi imperialism in Poland, and the micro-history is the tale of a single book. My tale turns on the material status and intellectual biography of this book, and it involves a bit of autobiography as well. I hope it'll offer a case study in how chance can give unexpected shape to a historian's work, and also how a sharp angle of vision can illuminate the more obscure corners of epochal events. The autobiography, I promise you it's brief. A year or so ago, I went to Poland for the first time in my life. This was not a country I was eager to visit. My family background made me hesitate to set foot in a country which had been the site of the terrible events which I've also spent too much of my life reading about. Now, I suppose this really ought to have made me more rather than less eager to find out about Poland, present-day Poland, firsthand, and not only as a historian of the Nazi era, um, but um, also as a citizen of the new Europe. So I probably should have jumped at the chance to see this country that's now so distant in time and circumstances from what it had been in scant five years of Nazi rule. But I have to say my resistance was almost visceral, and in the end I went only because I'd been invited to a conference in Warsaw. I won't dwell at any greater length on my motives and hesitancies, except to pick up the theme of this talk. I was willing to go as an academic to Warsaw, but I did not want to be a tourist in Poland. For this reason, I really wanted to leave the country immediately after the conference was over, but I was persuaded by my partner that we must at least stay and visit Krakow, a city famous for um, the beauty and historic character of its old town, and now a major tourist destination, which I'm sure many people from here have um, been to. From my skewed perspective, though, Krakow was not this charming city, but was first and foremost infamous as the seat of the Nazi occupation regime established in this region of Poland in October 1939. Well, I went, despite my misgivings, and spent a couple of days in this city, which is, of course, very handsome indeed. While I was there doing my best not to be a tourist, I went on my usual quest for the second-hand bookshops, 
and I had the good luck to stumble on a very fine antiquarian bookstore on one of the city's main streets. It turned out to house a treasure trove of Poland's and Krakow's cultural history, um, most of it, of course, in Polish, but nevertheless, it looked fascinating. <laughs> I stayed in it for ages, but I didn't find anything to buy, despite how interesting it all looked in principle, until at the very last moment, I went to take a final look at a shelf of old Baedeker tourist guides, which one often finds in uh, stores like this. My eye was suddenly caught by the title on one spine that I had not previously noticed. Tucked in among the familiar volumes on Berlin, the Rhine, northern France, Italy, and so on, was Baedeker's General Gouvernement. So the book um, resembled all the other volumes in this famous series, except that its date of publication was 1943, the middle of the war, and its title was, to me, totally unexpected. To a historian of Nazi Germany, the general government, to give it its English uh, translation, has but a single overriding association. This was the Polish territory handed over by Hitler to his party crony Hans Frank immediately after the German conquest of Poland in 1939. Okay, so there you see um, the general government. It's fairly visible on that slide, I think. The region, this region, as you know, was studded with the ghettos and camps whose names have become the roll call of the Holocaust. Warsaw, Lublin, Belzec, Sobibor, Treblinka, Majdanek. Along with the Wartegau, the part of the West that was taken into Germany, the general government was the place where Himmler's wider plans for the racial reconfiguration of Eastern Europe had their most disastrous consequences. As Hitler had said in 1933, you can't Germanize the population of an annexed or conquered territory. Only soil can be Germanized. The general government was, in consequence, a place of unbounded imperialism, economic exploitation and mass murder, ruled over by a capricious and corrupt tyrant. My reaction at seeing it made into the subject of a respected tourist guidebook can only be compared to finding an 1898 Fodor's Guide to King Leopold's Congo Free State or a guide blur to the Gulag Archipelago dating from the 1930s. I soon discovered that although the Baedeker was new to me, it was familiar to historians working on the history of the general government and on German leisure and tourism. It certainly attracted some attention in the work of historians like Rudy Koshaw, who's written on the um, history of leisure and tourism, um, Kristen Semmons, another writer in the field, Götz Ali and Suzanne Heim, who have um, worked on planning for the East. The most extended treatment to date is a very useful 1997 essay on the guide by Nicholas Lane. But the very existence of the guide still seemed to me uncanny, and it also had that effect on many of my colleagues um, who hadn't heard of it before. This was among other German historians. I get the sense that some people here know of this book, but maybe others of you haven't um, come across it before. And this sense was all the more powerful, because as you see here, the copy I had picked up had itself been the property of the general government, and I felt this imposed a kind of magnetic obligation to find out more about it. Uh, The image you see here is the departmental slide inside the book recording the budget line for an official purchase. It reveals that the copy I now own had been bought by the Department for Science, Education and Public Instruction under the line for purchases for the state libraries. It was the second of five copies bought or at least entered into the record on the 31st of May 1943, which is very shortly after the book's publication in April. How it had subsequently made its way into the bookshop, I do not know. The questions I hope I'm going to be better able to answer than this are the subject of this lecture. How did this book come to be produced? 
Who was it aimed at, and how was it intended to be used? What relationship did its depictions bear to the situation on the ground in 1942 and 43, the years of its research and publication? And the most important, which I'll come to at the end, is how can we read it in relation to other contemporary publications presenting the general government to the reading public? Now, this ought to be placed in a wider history of tourism and the Baedeker um, in Germany, the Baedeker guides in general, but I don't have time to go into that, so I'll just have to give you a very potted history, but first... The Baedeker Guides, as you probably know, were one of Germany's great contributions to modern tourism and travel culture. Karl Baedeker entered the market in the 1830s as the aristocratic Grand Tour was giving way to the more bourgeois market through which modern tourism emerged. By the 1860s, this market was expanding rapidly in Germany, as elsewhere, and German tourists were being invited to experience their country as a national culture by visiting it. In the words of one historian, quote, the Baedeker created a tangible image of German nationhood for the national liberal travel culture, unquote, um, helping bourgeois, Bavarians, Hessians, Prussians, and so on, to understand themselves as Germans. Baedeker was becoming by this time the gold standard by which all other travel guides were measured. As an American writer put it in 1908, Baedeker had evolved a this is a quotation, had evolved a precise and utilitarian system. He put the hotel first and the scenery afterward. He stated distances and times and prices. He blue-penciled many of the flowery descriptions. He sought to give facts rather than impressions. His aim was to make travel more of an exact science and less a venture into the unknown. By 1900, there were 70 Baedekers in print, and Baedeker had entered the lexicon as a synonym for travel guide, just as the brand name Kodak had cornered the lexical terrain of the camera. If we turn now to the immediate period after the First World War, Baedeker's early success in providing Germans with a means to assimilate their national cultural identity became a liability after the First World War. Europeans turned against this quintessentially uh, European product and developed guide series of their own. In the 1920s, therefore, Baedeker focused more on its regional German guides, but the firm was also, by this time, suffering from the high production costs of its quality volumes, as well as this very unpredictable market. In 1934, a year after the Nazi regime came into power, the Nazi government brokered a loan of 120,000 Reichsmark to the Baedeker firm, which was provided by a consortium of private and public enterprises, including Lufthansa, the Reichsbahn, and the Reich Tourism Commission. This was the first link between the company and a Nazi regime that was increasingly taking control of the German travel industry and the organisation of leisure in the name of fostering a fulfilled and stable national community. And of course there's a whole literature about the role of of tourism and leisure organisation in the creation of the Volksgemeinschaft. Baedeker played its part in this remade German tourist industry after 1933. For example, it published a guide to Madeira around the time of the first um, cruise there, organised by Kraftdeutsch Freude. It revised its Berlin and North German guides for the Olympic year 1936 in both German and English. The incorporation of Austria into Germany in 1938 also impacted the production of Baedekers for what were now treated as German provinces. Now, after 1939, the war, of course, had an enormous, enormous, obviously, clearly, huge impact on the tourist industry, throwing the Baedeker firm into further financial straits. 
Until 1941, however, domestic leisure travel continued to be treated as a valuable means of relaxation and as a way of helping the nation to keep its nerve under the pressure of the war. It also brought something that I want to call occupation tourism. There are various names for this in circulation. Rudy Koshar calls this savage tourism, which is, a, I think, a very nice term, but I want to just widen it out a bit. The historian Alan Confino has claimed that the Wehrmacht, quote, served as the biggest travel agency in German history, end of quote. In addition to the military and police personnel who were launched into so many interesting foreign countries, the occupation of wide swathes of Europe offered surprising scope for members of the German Civil and Nazi Party administration, businessmen and other civilian travellers, to visit improving cultural monuments, polish their knowledge of European culture, and grasp at first hand the superiority and the wide reach of Germany's achievements. As well as the general government volume, Baedeker issued a number of new guides during the war, one to Alsace and the Vosges in 1942 to celebrate the reunion of Alsace with Germany in 1940, and also a new volume for Vienna and the Lower Danube in 1943. In 1943 and 1944, the firm also published a handful of other travel books for Italy and Prague, which were not strictly speaking Baedeker's, but were designed for front workers and probably resembled the numerous guides and booklets distributed by the Wehrmacht, the uh, German armed forces, for their own servicemen. And my um, erstwhile PhD student from Oxford, Tom Williams, has started a very interesting project precisely on soldier tourism. But I think as this talk unfolds, there's something wider than that, which I've called occupation tourism, at least ideally there was. With these publications, Baedeker was attempting to battle wartime sales losses that required the forgiveness of its 1934 loan after a very long drawn-out process that ended in 1943 when all the creditors agreed to kiss goodbye to their money. So that's so much for a very potted summary of Baedeker's history. I want now to turn to Baedeker in the general government. It's this background of collaboration with and financial dependence on the Nazi government that provides an initial context for reading the general government Baedeker. But it's not sufficient. The general government was a peculiar region and not entirely comparable with either Alsace or Austria, both of which had been formally incorporated into Greater Germany. It was a political anomaly. I mean, there were many political anomalies in the German occupation system, but this was its own political anomaly. Its designation was a matter of convenience. This term was picked up from the name applied by Tsarist Russia to this administrative area, which the Germans had already adopted once before when they occupied what was called the General Government of Warsaw in the First World War. In 1939, the General Government was not the legal successor to the Polish state. There was no sort of like um, thread of sovereignty. Um, It had no status in international law. It was administered by Germany without being part of or attached to the Reich. Its political relationship with Germany remained undefined. Nominally, it was under control of the governor, Hans Frank, who answered directly to Hitler. His powers were constrained by formal competences that were assigned to other authorities, including the Reich Ministry of the Interior and the Four-Year Plan, and most importantly um, to Himmler as head of the SS and police, and in Himmler's capacity as commissar for the strengthening of the German race. Frank's term for this territory, which was used repeatedly in the publications and and writings on it, was he called it a Nebentland des Reiches. That means a land alongside the Reich. I mean, that really captures its anomalous status. A residual concept that, in a sense, gestured towards 
an undeclared future, an unknown future politically. Um, and in parallel, Frank's officials often referred to the German Reich as the Kernland or core territory. So this sense of a kind of a core territory and its periphery, it's a long side bit. As Governor General, it was Hans Frank's ambition to fill this empty category with a political meaning of his own choosing. Now, officially, he was supposed to implement Hitler's policy of treating Poland primarily as a reservoir of labor and resources for the German war industry. But he saw his task as far more than this and fought a losing battle against the forces that were rivaling him for control and that initially made his territory into a dumping ground, as Goebbels put it in 1940, for, quote, everyone else's garbage, Jews, the sick, layabouts. Frank set about establishing the general government as a model territory, a Musterland. Now, all historians of Nazi Germany know that every part of Nazi Germany, every Gauleiter wanted his Gau to be the Mustergau, but this, for the general government, was, as I say, a rather different situation than the rest of Germany. He equipped it with a recognisably German administrative structure. He gave it a kind of hybrid German and quasi-colonial character, in other words, He also devoted considerable thought and expenditure to building up its cultural life, not least by grabbing some of Poland's most famous artworks for his own collection. Among other ventures designed to cultivate or entertain the Germans in Poland, Frank founded a state orchestra and theatre, opened or restored museums, academies and a conservatoire, established the Institut für Deutsche Ostarbeit as a research unit and nucleus for a future German university in Krakow, and endowed prizes for literature, poetry, music, and sports. Dozens or a couple of dozen exhibitions of art, architecture, and cultural and social life were mounted in Krakow and elsewhere, most of them restricted to German visitors. German publishing firms were founded, along with an official newspaper, the Krakow Zeitung, and several weekly and monthly magazines. At the same time, the government issued or sponsored handbooks of information about the region, and these are quite hefty volumes, as well as research bulletins and more popular magazines, which were targeted at businessmen and other visitors, as well as the soldiers and civilian staff serving in the region, and potentially including readers in Germany. The incorporation of Galicia into the general government in August 1941 coincided with, um, I don't know if it prompted this, the opening of an official general government promotional office on Unter den Linden in Berlin to showcase its products and achievements. And this was meant to be like any trade delegation, that you could come there, find out about how to do imports and exports, see what sorts of products were made, and so on and so forth. Frank's self-importance and sense of mission was limitless. He was known locally as King Stanislaus, and uh, Curzio Malaparte has left us a terrific and terrifying description of his court in the Wawel Castle in Krakow, stuffed with posers, charlatans, and careerists. It reads a bit like a kind of counter-Karl Kraus. In defiance of uh, Hitler's expectations, Frank's activism was all about putting the general government on the Germans' mental as well as geographical maps as a going concern with a bright Germanic future. This activity was also about creating an impressive collective image of the Germans in the face of the actual heterogeneity and fragmented character of the German community in Poland, which was by any reckoning tiny. As the Germans took over in 1939, no more than 75,000 of Poland's 17.5 million inhabitants counted as German. I think this is the 1931 Polish census figures. The resettlement of ethnic German farm families from outside Poland, some of them even replacing local Germans who'd already been shipped off to repopulate the Wartegau, 
the arduous identification of ethnic Germans, the Volksdeutsche, scattered among the Poles, and the incorporation of Galicia in 1941 increased the population of more or less German Germans, but only to about 1% or 2% by 1943. So these are, you know, this is a tiny percentage of Germans in a huge non-German population. Largest groups are Poles, Jews, and Ukrainians. Most Germans in the general government during the war were incomers conscripted from the Reich, and they were disproportionately male, which is the hallmark, I think, of a colony or an occupation regime. They were soldiers and policemen, employees of the rail and postal services, administrative officials, and trustees of Germanized business enterprises. Um, This, then, was the wider context within which um, Frank personally commissioned the Baedeker as a public imprimatur on the ambitions of his political and cultural product. Its timing coincided with an upswing in Frank's political status following a rather shaky period as the war with Russia began. Secure within its reassuringly familiar and prestigious red binding, the Baedeker would recover and authoritatively record the evidence of the German presence in this region in the past. It would signal the cultural work that Germans had already accomplished and it would invent the future of the general government as a German territory for German and perhaps international consumption. So in September 1942, Frank met with Oskar Steinheil, Baedeker's representative and a prolific author of guidebooks both before and after the war, to commission, quote, a handbook to the general government according to the usual style and format of the world-famous Baedeker volumes. And as I said, it is that. It's exactly the same as the others. The value of a Baedeker was so important to Frank that he instructed his own propaganda department to abandon a virtually finished project to issue its own work of reference, which had been in hand for some time. Baedeker's man Steinheil planned an extensive information-gathering trip through the territory in October, for which Frank undertook to provide a car and administrative support. So this was very much a government-sponsored project. Given that the guide was supposed to be produced by early 1943, however, it also drew heavily on information already assembled within the general government itself. Um, This included research carried out by the official in charge of the government's tourism department. And I have to say, this is a department about which I, at this point, know nothing. There was a tourism department. Um, And then there was material taken from the comprehensive handbook to the the general government um, that had been edited by the chief of the um, propaganda department press office, the Nazi journalist Max Duprell. The proposed print run of this guide was 20,000 copies. This is an astonishing quantity of paper, expressly committed by Frank in an increasingly strapped wartime economy. And Frank actually, I mean, I think the Baedeker in this sense is just the kind of crowning pinnacle, in a way, of Frank's whole concept of fighting a propaganda war on paper. Um, He had secured, by dint of immense efforts, enormous quantities of paper to be imported into a region which was not supposed to be um, importing any kind of uh, materials from Germany. It was supposed, rather, to export its products to Germany for their own war war effort. Um, But Frank protected his paper supply... Um, and kept going his government publications to an extent that was uh, far in excess of what was possible in the Reich, in the Kernland, by the middle or late part of the war. Um, Even with these priorities, this was a profligate commitment of a scarce resource, which I think can only be explained by Frank's imperial ambitions and by the international standing of this guidebook. Now, how many of those copies were actually produced, distributed and sold 
is hard to gauge, which is a euphemism for saying I have no idea. Um, the same, of course, goes for its readership. Intended, you can infer for a bit. Actual, if any, of course, is very difficult. And this is always the question one gets asked if one risks talking about books is, well, how many people did use it? How did they use it? And so on. I'm sidestepping those questions to some extent. Although the entries in the guide largely follow the standard Baedeker format, addressed to the culturally inquisitive and self-propelled tourist, this stands in considerable tension with the information given in the practical introduction, um, let alone with the situation on the ground, as we'll see. Um, unlike for Alsace, to begin with, travelling into the general government was commensurate to entering a foreign country. It had deterrent levels of, of ID, visa and currency regulations, which had to be detailed in the introduction. On top of this, the enumerated categories of travellers to whom the guide is uh, addressed conspicuously exclude the casual tourists who are normally the targets of these guides, let alone the organised tour parties, which would have been a common feature of the um, pre-war travel industry. The sorts of people who are addressed or who are named include officials, businessmen, family members of Germans stationed in the region. I think that's probably an important group because there are a lot of people there who've been seconded from jobs in the Old Reich to go and staff Frank's administration and their family members do get permission to go and visit them from time to time. Whether they then wanted to traipse around the countryside looking at monuments, we don't know. So Germans stationed in the, in the region might receive visits from family members. And another category of people were, were people who were visiting military graves of soldiers who had been buried in Poland in the course of the um, 1939 campaign. But the usual amenities a Baedeker user might expect were in short supply or non-existent. Roads were regularly described as poor. Public transport was limited or suspended. Accommodation outside the major towns and cities was restricted to Nazi party facilities and the local Deutsches House. Tourist information, any source for information listed in many uh, localities, um, are the local party, Nazi party offices. And on remoter roads, travellers were advised to carry a weapon. Even though Karl Baedeker had mused about off-the-beaten-track travel in a memo he had written in 1936 about the future development of the travel industry, this was indeed savage tourism on a different scale. Now, there is some limited and contradictory evidence of what might be called tourist traffic in this period. But facilitating real journeys was not necessarily the primary purpose of a guide whose inspiration was, as I've suggested, largely political. Karl Baedeker's preface to the guide, which was very different in tone from his pre-war volumes, described it as an account of, quote, the work of organisation and reconstruction, end of quote, achieved in three and a half years of German administration. He commended it not only to the elusive tourist, but, quote, to everyone who has anything to do with the Vistula region, the vague and undefined sort of group. Unusually, this guide included a series of essays on different aspects of the region, which also declare its intimate entanglement with Frank's political project. I mean, of course, other Baedekers had some kind of introductory essay, but these are very specifically um, quite an extended um, section introducing this region to the reader. Two of the authors of these essays, the geographer Ernst Fugmann and the art historian Erwin Hof, were staff members at the Institute for Deutsche Ostarbeit, which was this major kind of think tank established by Frank in Krakow. And they undoubtedly contributed additional information to the guide. A short essay on law and government was contributed by Albert Wey, who was the head of the legislation section of the general government. And a longer essay on art history, the kind of thing you might expect to find somewhat um, more 
traditionally in this guide, was the work of an Austrian historian from the University of Breslau, Dagobert Frey, who had played an infamous role in the German plunder of Polish artworks. Uh, now, Fugman's essay ended by quoting Frank in 1942 to the effect that the general government, quote, constitutes an important connecting link between front and homeland. And in fact, uh, Frank's little kind of epigraph to this volume makes a similar kind of point. This suggests to me how we might read the Baedeker itself historically if we displace space into time. The Baedeker embodied a parallel act of temporal balancing, pivoting on the unresolved status of the region's present and a future that was eagerly desired in theory as it was unforeseeable in practice. At the time of its writing and publication in 1942-43, the Nazi project in the general government stood uneasily between reclamation and colonisation, between reclaiming an earlier history of German presence and reinvigorating it with renewed efforts, between asserting an essential continuity of this German presence and acknowledging a historic rupture and displacement, between a past which in short had been German and a future which would once again be German. And I'll come back to um, talk more about this um, sort of overturning of time in my conclusion. This is the context, I suggest, in which we should place the infrequent, but for that reason remarkable, references to Jews that crop up repeatedly in the Baedeker and that are the focus of the rest of this lecture. Typically, references to the arrival of Jews appear in the historical summary preceding the description of a town, and they are linked to the prior or simultaneous loss of the town's German population and its decline under the pressure of political and economic processes as Polish governance took over and Jews flowed in to usurp the Germans' place. The few explicit references to a named locality being jetzt Judenfrei, now free of, of Jews, and there are a few of those in this book, ignore both the process and the sheer scale of the racial engineering and population transfers that had been undertaken since 1939 and the mass murders underway by 1942. To my mind, Baedeker's language and its silences are not best seen as now astonishing acts of willful blindness, nor exactly as returns of guiltily repressed knowledge. I mean, that's one way of, of looking at them, I think. I also don't think that they're the result simply of um, what Nicholas Lane calls an editing problem in which fragments of inappropriate text lifted from material already prepared in the offices of the general government were inadvertently left in the guide. Um, I think that's plausible at one level. I mean, the, clearly this is a sort of cut-and-paste job. You can see that. And if you compare the text with um, other publications um, which are doing a similar kind of a roundup of places and statistics and so on, you can see that. And I think also, you know, it's plausible too that the editing was done very fast because there was not very much time to gather information. Then there was a great rush to publication. Um, but to my mind, this kind of explanation doesn't do full justice to the potential of textual interpretation to disclose meanings that are never quite explicitly stated. So beyond this, I would suggest that these scattered phrases can be read as half-submerged gestures that point to the Jews not only as the agents of past degradation, that's pretty much explicit in a lot of these accounts, um, but also as the mechanism for the current reclamation of the, of the region by the Germans. These potted histories in the Baedeker of the different cities and towns tell a repeated story of how Jews had degraded each place by their opportunistic arrivals, which ruined its earlier German character. And of course, the 
dating. They play fast and loose with the dating. But after 1939, so the story goes, the Jews now embody the opportunity for the territory's restoration to a pre-Jewish past through acts of vanishing which are only laconically declared, if at all, but which will enable the re-Germanisation of the land that the guide celebrates. Now, there's a parallel story, not exactly parallel, there's a comparable story that could be told about how the Poles figure in this, but that's not my subject here. I want to address this relationship concretely in two ways. One of these has not escaped the attention of historians, and this is to juxtapose the typical tourist routes and attractive sites described in the Baedeker with what had happened immediately before, or indeed was still ongoing in those self-same places. Ghetto clearances, transit camps, killing camps, deportation routes, forest hunts for escaped Jews, and so on. Uh, Koshar does this for the Zamosh area, site of one of the major projects of, of racial engineering, and you can do it route by route. And I'll just offer, I think I've only got time for one example here, um, and then I want to go on to a second context, which I think helps us um, even more, or as much as this other one, to grasp the full logic of this extraordinary book and its textual economy. So to think about juxtaposition, we could start with Krakow, uh, the seat of Frank's government, which Baedeker describes as the citadel or heartland of German creative construction over many centuries. In 1943, there were no more than 25,000 Germans among its 345,000 inhabitants. Krakow, as Baedeker notes, had flourished as a manufacturing and commercial centre under German city law, uh, Magdeburgerrecht, reaching its apogee in the 15th and early 16th centuries. The city is described as one in which, quote, like few others in the eastern settlement region, it displays so impressively the face of an overwhelmingly German town, where one encounters everywhere testimony to German labour and German culture. And that actually, that combination of labour and culture is just crucial for how these texts work. Work is what it's all about. Baedeker's walking tour of the city begins from the recently renamed Adolf Hitlerplatz, previously the Grand Square, which dated from the 13th century. The visitor's eye is directed particularly to anything associated with the Germans, whether historic buildings or the regime's new administrative offices. Consistent with Frank's own usage, the Wawel Castle is referred to only as the Castle, de Burg, and streets are given their new German names. 120 of these had been renamed, mostly in districts of the city which were slated for German residents. The guide is not entirely silent about Polish historic monuments, um, and so it talks about the parts of the cathedral where the crypt where Polish rulers are buried, the Pilsudski monument, and so on. But its emphases yield a cumulative impression of a city owing little to the Poles and stamped largely by German culture. According to Baedeker, the city's decline began in the 16th century when Krakow began to be polonized, and this was followed by what it called a steep increase that's a repeated phrase too, in the number of Jews who, quote, monopolised the money market and trade. The city's history in the following centuries is presented as largely one of decline until its takeover by the Austrians in 1846. Not really Germans, but better than nothing. A subsequent period of fresh development under Habsburg rule was brought to an end in 1918 by the re-establishment of the Polish state and the new government's deliberate demotion of Krakow in favour of Warsaw. The German conquest of the city on the 5th of September 1939, however, has, as the guide writes, quote, inaugurated a new chapter in the city's history, um, unquote. A city that already offered, quote, everywhere evidence of German work and German culture, as I mentioned a moment ago, was now once again a focus for Germany's work in the East, for Germany's Ostarbeit. 
Leaving the centre of the city, the guide takes one southwards to Kazimierz, by then a suburb, but originally founded by the Polish king in 1335, as a rival to Krakow. The guidebook notes that the district later became, quote, the abode of the Jewish population of Krakow, and then notes parenthetically that it is jetzt judenfrei, now free of Jews, and then it continues on its way. I've suggested or given some indications of how to read this phrase rhetorically, but what lay behind it historically? In 1939, about 56,000 Jews lived in Krakow. With Frank keen to make his capital city free of Jews as quickly as possible, the population began to be thrown out in March 1940. Within a year or so, no more than 15,000 Jews were left in Krakow, and at that point, the process of ghettoization began. But it was not the old Jewish district of Kazimierz that was chosen to be the ghetto site. Instead, the ghetto was established in March 1941 in the nearby suburb of Podgorze, identified by Baedeker only as a free city founded by the Austrian Emperor Joseph II in 1785. Not far from Podgorze lived a young woman, Helena Nelken, a young Jewish girl whose family was among those forced to move into the ghetto on the 20th of March 1941. I want to use her diary because it allows us to view the city through rather different eyes from those of the Baedeker. Quote, on one side, she's describing the deportation into the ghetto. On one side of the street, there were huge trucks, wagons and wheelbarrows loaded with furniture, trunks, carpets, wash tubs, pots and pans, odds and ends. On the other side of the street, poles moved in the opposite direction because the poles living in this poor quarter of Podgorze have had to make space for us. To think that all of a sudden Casimirs, the destination of the Poles evicted from Gorze, to think that all of a sudden Casimirs, that traditionally Jewish section, is going to be full of Aryans. So extraordinary exchange of population taking place. Disoriented by this move, Halina forgot her new destination when she returned from work that evening. Quote, I instinctively turned towards our home instead of to the ghetto. She just automatically goes the wrong way. Uh, end of quote. A sense of place and the anguish of her banishment from it pervades her diary. As she wrote, I like to sit on, the, on a part of the ghetto wall that was unfinished at this point. I like to sit on the wall and look at the swarm of streets, buildings, tall church spires, and the shining ribbon of the Vistula River. In October, after her assignment to forced labour in a factory, she writes, quote, These people, she means non-Jews, ride in a streetcar through the ghetto and look at us with curiosity and contempt. They, the free people, the Aryans, rush by in trains along the railroad embankment just next to the wall, and they do not know that here, in this cramped, walled-in cage, someone is suffocating and is unable to understand why it is forbidden to walk around the city in which one was born and which one loves so much. Now, as it happens, um, one of the tram passengers left their ticket as a bookmark in my Baedeker, which I find also an uncannily material echo. I mean, I've got it here. I, you know, I bought the book and then I find, here it is, here is the bookmark. Obvious thing that you would do, right? But, you know, that's how paper gets endowed with particular meaning. This kind of um, tragically ironic juxtaposition could be repeated and extended place by place and route by route through the guide. And in an earlier version of thinking about this talk, I had an endless set of examples of these, but I actually um, want in the time left to me to fill out the other side of this balancing act between past, present and future by setting the Baedeker against literature that had been circulating equally publicly before the guide was published. 
And this is the travelogues and the reportage that presented the general government to a reading public between 1939 and 1943. In other words, the Baedeker doesn't, it's not in a vacuum. There's, there's a lot of other publications which are addressing the status, the situation of the general government from a different point of view. And this, I think, is a literature that has to be read alongside the Baedeker as elements in the wider task of rendering the Germanization of Poland uh, fit for public consumption. And I think it also has an element of self-persuasion in it too. One example of this is a glossy semi-official magazine printed on heavy stock paper with lavish illustrations and a print run of 15,000, which was distributed in the general government and um, Germany. And this is it, Das Genialgouvernement. I think it was originally monthly and then... Um, and then quarterly. And it really, it's really high quality, very, very good paper. If Baedeker can evade the process of the transition, the change, the change, the, the transition between the general government that is, is described before 1942 and that which the Baedeker um, just gives us, the description the Baedeker gives us, if Baedeker can, ev- can evade the process of, the tr- this, of this transition and merely describe its effects in a supposed afterwards, these earlier publications present what I'll call a tourism of disgust that boldly depicts the task at hand in the present and gestures towards its mastery. This is a literature that straddles the genres of war reporting and travelogue, and it was written for commercial publication by officials and journalists who travelled the same routes after 1939 that Baedeker wanted to take its tourists along. They comment on the towns, the sites, the people and landscapes they encountered and the challenges of travel in a strange land and they enrich their accounts with precisely the descriptions of people that Baedeker doesn't vocalise. To take a particularly extended example of this genre, I mean it's a whole book devoted to this, we could travel alongside Bruno Hans Hirscher, a Nazi journalist who became the chief reporter for the Krakauer Zeitung and published a collection of his reportage in 1941 another very elegantly produced book embellished with um, pretty high-quality photographs um, of landscapes and so on. Hirsch's first arrival in Krakow in 1939 provides the occasion for the inevitable contrast. First, quote, the appalling muck in the station square, the deliberate neglect and Polish filth. Then within minutes, he catches sight of the Burg, the Wawel Castle, standing, quote, in the midst of this alien strangeness as a German greeting and welcome. The juxtaposition... Uh, It's a banal one, obviously, and it's it's repeatedly invoked as he travels on and is fortified with ongoing vicious descriptions of Jewish communities. You can follow this through the book. He begins with a certain, I mean, there's a certain tone that his language has. And it's not until he reaches Warsaw, I think, that you see his his account invested with a fully articulated virulence. Here his contrast starts once again with a juxtaposition between the marketplace's Germanic character and something else. And this something else is, quote, and these are his descriptions. First of all, he'll describe the marketplace, what it looks like, and so on. And then we have the following description. He describes the insatiable rapacity with which Jewish parasites have infected the entire city and made Warsaw into a veritable Jewish metropolis. The filth in which they live is almost indescribable. The number of lice commensurately high. They see typhus as their specialty. Jews are not harmed by lice, perhaps simply out of gratitude for the useful role they play as busy intermediaries. The Jew fears cleanliness even more than he fears the Nazis. Well, this equation between dirt and Jews, in some senses, gives the lie to why Jews, in fact, should be scared of being cleansed by Nazis. And you could, of course, comment on the depth of meanings that is figured by 
a German marketplace that houses open and honest exchange with the exploitative subterranean commerce of the Jews. Um, reaching Lublin, where this um, uh, metaphor takes over further, Hirscher again observes that, quote, this cityscape is a German one, that's his words, still recognisable under its Polish and Jewish accretions. And then he goes on to write a lengthy and cruelly demeaning description of the ghetto, with its thick-packed, crooked houses, its filthy, deformed, grouding people, this is my summary, living off their retail exploitation of illiterate Polish peasants, hiding their possessions in a labyrinth of cellars, whose inhabitants, Hirscher writes, are, quote, no longer human beings. A relief, then, to escape from this into a pub filled with, quote, German comradeship, German words, German music, German hospitality. The identification of Jews with dirt and disease is, of course, a familiar and ubiquitous trope in Nazi propaganda. It's not surprising to find it rehearsed repeatedly in this genre of writing. These journalistic texts echo an extensive literature that rendered the Jewish problem in Poland as a problem of public health, its solution, therefore, to be found in German measures of public hygiene um, and urban planning. When the Baedeker referred to German town planning and public health in Łódź, uh, or in German Litzmannstadt, or to the redevelopment of Lublin, which it does, um, only the steps leading towards this future were elided. In only a single case, a small tourist town near Lublin, does the Baedeker explicitly mention not only the loss of the town's German population and its alleged replacement by Jews in the 17th century, but also what it calls the Aussiedlung, the resettlement elsewhere, of its Jewish population after 1939, and the now possible reconstruction of the town as a pleasant German resort. This breach of the rule of silence discloses that just as Jews had become the parasitical beneficiaries of departed Germans in the past, so now Germans had everything to gain by sweeping away the Jews in their turn. Okay, let me bring my comments to a conclusion. There is an inertness in any tourist guide through which, as Roland Barthes has suggested in a short essay on the Blue Guides, quote, the human life of a country disappears to the exclusive benefit of its monuments. To select only monuments, Bart goes on, suppresses at one stroke the reality of the land and that of its people. It accounts for nothing of the present, that is, nothing historical. I think that's a wonderful phrase, nothing of the present, therefore nothing historical. Um, what is to be seen is thus constantly in the process of vanishing. Well, that's one way of looking at the guidebook, and Bart, Bart actually um, attaches this to a particular uh, role of the guidebook in constructing bourgeois culture in the 19th century. The kind of travelogue I have just been citing, by contrast, exists to conjure up precisely the people who are ostensibly absent from the guidebook. And in the literature I've been describing, there's a lot of this, I've just given you one very compressed example of it, there are no inhibitions about enlisting every physical sense in the service of the tourism of disgust. The sight, sound, and smell of Jews are repeatedly invoked to populate a panorama of sensational nausea. Between them, guidebook and travel reportage play with the visible and the invisible, the vanishing or occluded past, the unresolved present, and the gestural future that is already known, even if it's not quite there yet. There is, in other words a complex interplay of chronologies at work in both the Baedeker as a project and in its mechanics of representation, something which we might refer to Reinhard Koselleck's well-known multiplication of the categories of past, present and future, which he expands into all the possible combinations of past, present and future from each of these vantage points. So the present that was the present of the past, the past that was the past of that 
past, its own future, and so on. There's a, an exponential um, multiplication of the number of past, presents, and futures that you can imagine if you go into the vantage points of past, present, and future themselves. If we set the Baedeker in the wider frame of parallel contemporary descriptions of the general government, as I've tried to do here, we can construct a trajectory of representation which begins in 1939 with depictions of the present state of the region and the scale and enormity of the task ahead and gestures towards what will at some point be a completed future. But that path, the path from A to B, from the present present to the future present, is never made quite explicit. And it is on this ground of intermediate uncertainty that the Baedeker stands. To our eyes, looking back at a past whose simultaneities we now know, the guide is disingenuously recording the sites of a landscape that was at that very moment the epicentre of the Holocaust. But the Baedeker not only ignores this, but must make its rhetorical stand on stabilising the future as if it is already the present, while at the same time repressing that unspeakable, although not unimaginable, intermediate mechanism for making the passage from one to the other. In the spatial sense, it represents a double exclusion of real people by both their absence and by their eviction. That the passage from past to future had some way to go between the dates of the reportage and the dates of the Baedeker can be judged from a letter from a Bavarian official describing his first impressions of Krakow to which he had been unenthusiastically seconded in April 1942. Quote, desolate, empty, cheerless, the station shot to pieces, filth, stench, rabble, a foreign language, hardly a word of German. Not much progress there. How very different this Krakow is from the confidence of Baedeker a year later, and different again from how it was to appear three years after this to Helena Nelken, whose bitter expulsion from Krakow's cityscape I cited above. Nelken survived the war and returned to Krakow in 1945 to reclaim her city with her own eyes. Quote, I drank in the sight of the market with its cobblestones, the slender tower of the Gothic church, piercing the deep azure sky, the Renaissance building of Sukhaniche. I apologise for my, my pronunciation. Everything was as it had been. The horse-driven carriages, the flower sellers, and the Heinal, the bugler on top of the Marienkirche, welcomed me home. End of quote. Well, that euphoria by a young Jewish woman who'd survived everything is understandable, even if her confidence in being able to recover, reappropriate an unaltered city is perhaps less persuasive. The recovery of this land by those evicted in practice by the Nazis and rhetorically by the Baedeker was not to be history's last word. But that is another story and perhaps another chance meeting with another book. Thank you. <laughs>